So David left there, verse 1 of chapter 22, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. The cave of Adullam is down here. When his brothers and the rest of his father's family learned about it, they went down there to meet him. And all those who were in trouble or owed some money or were discontent gathered around him, and he became their leader. And he had about 400 men with him. So David's hanging out in the cave of Adullam. His family comes out and meets him. They've got to hide in secret to be with him because they know they're probably being watched by Saul's men. And then all of a sudden, people start gathering around David. So he's there long enough for people to figure out that he's there, to rally to him. And the people that begin to gather around him are people who are discontented with Saul's governmental policy. Like, I voted for Hillary and she didn't become president. I hate Trump. Okay, those kind of people. And they're discontent. The people who are kind of outlaws, are they outlaws because Saul is an unrealistic person who's made outlaws out of innocent people? Or are they outlaws because they're full-blown criminals? And people who are in debt because they can't pay their bills. And most of the time, that means that life was just really hard, not that they were irresponsible. But these people begin to gather around David, and they gather around him in 400 in number. That's a lot. And that's a lot of people to find them. And it also makes it a lot harder for you to hide when there's 400 people around you. But here's the thing. They can find them, but Saul can't. Why? God. God. All these little things. Like, on the surface, it just feels like life. But when you really begin to look at it, you're like, this is God. This is God. And so they gather around him. Then David went from there to Mizpah and Moab, where he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you until I know what God is going to do for me. So he had, so he had them stay with the king of Moab, and he stayed with them the whole time that David was in the stronghold. So David then goes to Moab. Now, why does he go to Moab? Because his grandmother was... Good. Because... His father was Jesse, his father was Obad, and his father was Boaz, who was married to Ruth, who was the Moabites. He is not safe here because Saul is trying to kill him in Israel. He's not safe from Philistia because they recognize him. So he goes to the other foreign power and hoping that he'll be safe there because that's his relatives. But what's the problem still? He's not trusting God. He's going to foreign powers. But not only that, he's outside the land now. So Philistia, you could technically argue whether that was the land or not. Technically, it is the land because God promised to them. But you could also say, well, it kind of not because they're not controlling it. But this, there's no argument on that one. He is full-blown out of the land. And remember, we've talked about this. The Bible has clearly established over and over again that moving eastward is bad. And not only has he gone out of the land, but he moved eastward out of the land. And this is not good. And notice that not once has he sought out God in prayer. And this is the first time he mentions God, but it's God, Elohim, and not Yahweh. And then what happens is very interesting. Verse 5, Then Gad, the prophet, said to David, Don't stay in the stronghold. Go to the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hurth. Now this says something big. For about 15 to 20 years, David is going to be on the run. And not one time will a prophet ever come to him except for this point when he left the land and told him to go back to the land. That shows you how important it is to God that he's in the land. You're the king of Israel. 
This is the promised land. You're supposed to be trusting in me. The covenant promises and blessings are in the land. There are no blessings outside the land. Go back to the land. And that's the only time a prophet ever comes to him while he's on the run. So that emphasizes how wrong what he did, just what it was that he just did, and how important it is for God, to God, for him to be in the land. And so he goes back. Do you get the sense that he's panicking? He's pulling out everything he can possibly think of. He's turning here, and that doesn't work. He's turning there, and that's not working. He's turning here, and it's not working. And I think we can all relate. We've all had moments like that in our life, where we keep trying this and this and this and this, and nothing seems to be working. Nothing seems to be working at all. But Saul found out the whereabouts, verse 6, of where David and his men were with him. And now Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree at an elevated location with his spear in his hand. All the servants stationed around him. Saul said to his servants, who were stationed around him, Listen up, you Benjamites. Is Jesse's son giving fields and vineyards to all of you? Or is he making all of you commanders and officers? For all of you have conspired against me. No one informs me when my own son makes an agreement with the son of Jesse. Not one of you feels sorry for me or informs me that my own son has commissioned my own servant to hide an ambush against me, as in this case today. Now, this is called paranoia schizophrenia. You're all conspiring against me. You're my tribal people, you Benjamites. And now you're conspiring against me, just like my own son is conspiring against me. No one tells me anything that's going on in the land. You're all traitors. And he calls him the son of Jesse every single time. That lowly, no position fool that I cannot say his name. And he's basically, he's probably with a spear in hand and crazy, screaming in a tirade. This would be a little scary. But Doag the Edomite, who had stationed himself with the servants of Saul, this is what makes us think that he might have more of a military position or a double duty kind of a thing, replied, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahlemelech, son of Hatab of Nob. He inquired of Yahweh for him and gave him provisions. He also gave him the sword of Goliath and the Philistine. Now notice how he referred things. First, he inquired of God for David. Did that really happen? No. And then he supplied him with weapons. <laughs> That's kind of true, but he really emphasizes that point. Saul thinks it's all conspiracy. David's not in a conspiracy against Saul. David's on the run for his life doing really stupid things. Doag is feeding the narrative that Saul has already bought into. And he doesn't have to work hard. And so he tells him that. Then the king arranged for a meeting with the priests of Ahlemelech, son of Atab, and all the priests of his father's house who were in Nob. They all came to the king. And then Saul said, Listen, son of Atab. He replied, Here I am, my lord. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and this son of Jesse? You gave him bread and a sword and inquired of God on his behalf, so that he opposes me and waits in ambush, as in the case today. Yes, David's like hiding out right now, ready to attack you. So he's accusing of him of conspiracy. In every single pagan nation, it was a requirement that every person who inquired of the gods through the priests or the prophets it had to be immediately reported to the king. And the reason is, think of this like the ancient version of the CIA or the FBI wiretapping everybody. The point was that the king had to know everything that was going on in the land. And this is a version of wiretapping. 
So anytime somebody went to them, information is power. And so every time there was information from the gods to some person, that information had to immediately be communicated to the king so that he would know what's going on. So they would not be left out in any kind of conspiracy against him. So you have the same information as every lord in the land that might be trying to take his throne from him. And this is a very smart thing to do because it probably all was really happening. That's why Saul's using the word conspiring and you're aiding him. You've become a CIA agent for David and not me because you didn't tell me the information that's supposed to come to me. However, this is not in the law of God. In fact, if anything, the law actually separated the priest and the king in every way possible. So he is basically expecting what a pagan king would expect. And he's gaining power and holding power in a way that a pagan king holds power. And now he's accusing Halemelech of conspiracy because Halemelech is not doing what he's supposed to, passing information on to him. Verse 14, Halemelech replied to the king, Who is among you all your servants is faithful like David? He is the king's son-in-law, the leader of your bodyguard, and honored in your house. Was it just today that I began to inquire of God on his behalf? Far be it from me. The king should not accuse his servant or any of his father's house. For your servant is not aware of all this, not in the whole or in part. Halemelech basically says, like, wait a minute. Who trusted David more than anybody? You did, Saul. Who made David a part of your family by marrying him in? You did, Saul. Who made him the bodyguard of his own personal bodyguard, Captain? You did, Saul. Who's honored David more than anybody else? You, Saul. How would I ever know that everything changed? It's like girls in high school, but dating. It's like the next day it's a completely different guy. I don't, can't keep up with this stuff. I don't know this stuff. I don't know in whole, and I don't know in part. This is a very logical argument. And then he also makes the point like, and now he doesn't say he inquired of God for David, but he does make the point like, I have inquired of God before for David, and I've never reported it to you, and it was not that big of a deal then. What's changed? That's a very logical, reasonable, and totally truthful thing. David might have been in trouble for lying, but Halemelech's not. But does that logic work with Saul? But King said, You will surely die, Halemelech. You and all your father's house. Even if he had conspired with David, that is not deserving of the death penalty according to the law. And even if it was deserving of the death penalty of the law, it does not apply to everybody in his family, let alone priests. Now he says you will die. Then the king said to the messengers who were stationed beside him, turn and kill the priest of Yahweh. For they too have sided with David. Now there's no evidence that all the priests are in with it. They knew he was fleeing, but they did not inform me. But the king's servants refused to harm the priests of Yahweh. They're scared to death of that. Okay, you know, we've probably done a lot of things for you, Saul, that we probably shouldn't have, but the priest of Yahweh is different. And, 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 and I don't mean this in a demeaning way, but they're even more holy than pastors. Okay? Because we don't hold pastors at the same level of holiness that God did in the law. So we're, we're talking about the most holy sanctioned people that God has ever called and he's just like killed them all now this is a total violation because their crime is not punishable by death he has not had a trial 
There are not at least two witnesses, and there hasn't been cross-examination, all of which the law requires. And he commands them to be killed. But the soldiers, they're like, no, no. Now, this is the second time they've opposed Saul. The first time is when they want to kill Jonathan, because Jonathan was working with God. Now they won't kill him, the priest, because they're working with God. So kudos to these people, there's a line that they won't cross. Then the king said to Doag, turn and strike down the priests. Now the word he uses there is actually execute. So Saul's beginning to realize that his men won't obey him, which means he's on legal shaky ground. So instead he now turns to Doag the Edomite, because he's thinking of all the people who didn't help him, Doag did, so maybe he'll obey this. But he changes the word kill to execute, which sounds it more legal and more courtroom-like. So Doag the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. He killed on that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. As for Nob in the city of the priests, he struck down with the sword men and women, children, infants, ox, donkeys, sheep, all with the sword. He went into Nob and he killed 85 priests. Not just one, but 85. And then he wiped out all the men, women, and children, animals. Who was Saul supposed to do this to? The Amalekites and the Philistines. And yet he didn't kill everybody and that got him in trouble and disqualified him as king. Now, who is he doing this to? His own people and the priest. This is what we saw in the book of Judges too. Who does this remind you of? Their failure to attack the enemy but they had no problem doing it to their people. Gideon did it with Sakath and Peniel when they wouldn't give him bread. He actually tortured them to death. Jephthah did it with the Ephraimites and went into a whole sort of a war and like ethnically genocide them practically. He's acting like them. Even Hollywood gets that this is super evil. Even Hollywood who are like anti-our God and have no respect for priests in the Catholic Church because they're always made out to be idiots or corrupt in their movies all the time. But they even get, when it comes to doing bad things to people, this is the worst of the worst. And if you've noticed this in movies, there's four kinds of really bad people in movies. There's the people who rob and cheat and lie and steal and con artists, but deep down inside they've got a good heart. They were just misguided and kind of selfish, like in the Ant-Man and that kind of stuff. Then there's the next level of bad guy where they're like actually hurt, they kill people. But they might have a legitimate reason. They grew up in a bad neighborhood and didn't know anything else. Or they got overly passionate and killed somebody. Or they got trapped in this hitman job and didn't know anything else. And they still try to make them relatable, right? Even though they're killing people. But they never kill women and children. That's the line they're not willing to cross. But then there's the next level of evilness that Hollywood shows you. And if they want to show you that somebody's really bad and really evil, they have you hurting and killing women and children. And at that moment, Hollywood's saying, these people are bad. And I don't want you to identify with them. I'm not trying to find any sympathetic angle on these people. They're hurting women and children. There's no coming back from that. But then there's the next level. If they want to show you that somebody's absolutely soulless and beyond all redemption, they show you hurting priests and killing priests. So you ever seen the movie Tombstone with Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer? It's about Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp and the, the old westerns, probably one of the best westerns out there. And the beginning is the Clanton Gang. The Clanton Gang was a, one of the first organized gangs in all of America back in the old west. And the movie begins 
with the Clanton gang riding in town. The music, you always know what you're supposed to feel by the music. Pay attention to the music. It's, it's, it is it's powerful. And so the music, dun, 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 kind of a thing with a bunch of other things. And they're galloping in. And they come into this Mexican town, and this federale, which is a Mexican sheriff or police or um, deputies, that kind of stuff, this guy, this federale, is getting married to his wife in a little chapel, like in the middle of everywhere, because everything in the, in the westerns are in the middle of nowhere. And these Clanton gang, and this federale has been arresting the Clanton gang members and putting away and even killing them sometimes in the scuffles. So they come into town and they accuse them of killing their own gang members. And then right on their wedding day, they drag them out of the chapel and they shoot both the man and the bride right there on their wedding day. Now the music and everything says to you, this is absolutely evil. This is messed up. You're hurting a woman. You're hurting them on their wedding day. But they still drug them out of the chapel. And that's a very important thing for what's coming next. Because then they go to the wedding reception, which has nobody there now. And they're eating their food and laughing, which makes them look even more evil because they don't even feel guilty of this. Now, the right-hand man is Johnny Ringo, which is a real-life, really scumbag. And he's sitting there eating, and this Mexican priest comes out, and in Spanish is quoting the book of Revelation of the horsemen of death coming and bringing hell upon them for a judgment of their sins. And Johnny Ringo very casually just pulls his gun out, shoots the guy in the head, puts it back down, and goes back to eating whatever he's doing. And the music just stops. And that's the other thing that directors do. When there is no music, that creates even more tension and horror. And all the Clanton gang members, the people who are willing to do all this stuff to a man and woman on their own wedding day and laugh about like it was no big deal, turn to Johnny Ringo in total shock and horror, like, oh my gosh, that's messed up. And that's how the Clanton gang's first introduced. And the very next scene is Wyatt Earp riding into town on a train. And the whole premise is this is why they need Wyatt Earp and this is why he deserves to hunt them down. And even Hollywood gets that these, this Johnny Ringo, who will be a constant theme throughout the movie and even called soulless and unredeemable later, the whole point is even Hollywood, who has no respect for religion and Catholicism, and always portrays us in negative ways, even gets by killing a priest. That's, that's, that's a line that only really soulless people cross. And if Hollywood gets that, then that says something when the chosen king of Yahweh over the chosen people of Yahweh is willing to kill 85 priests. How is it that Hollywood gets it better than he does? This is evil. And at this point, you're supposed to feel the shock that even the Clanton gang felt. But even more so because you're not even that bad. But even more, what the narrator is showing here is that Saul has truly become a despot pagan king. He has really now truly become a king like all the other nations. And there is nothing that he's not willing to do. But the other thing is he's made himself an absolute enemy of Yahweh. He has opposed the kingdom of Yahweh. He has opposed the people of Yahweh. He has opposed the will of Yahweh. And in not in a Adam and Eve, I got tempted, or an us and a making stupid things, but in what the Bible calls a high-handed sin. Screw you, God. I don't care, and I will feel nothing when I do it. 
And that's how far Saul has come. Remember, this is the guy who said, who, me? Hiding in the baggage? Afraid? And then he's building monuments to himself, and now he's doing this. And when you first read this, you're like, how can this guy be a king like all the other nations? They're all corrupt and power-hungry and evil people. This guy's a coward. And then you keep reading and you realize, ah, oh, there he is. But it also is a very powerful lesson on what power does to people. It can take the most cowardly of people that are hiding out in the baggage and refusing to go out and do things, and he turns into this moral monster that even Hollywood would be shocked by. And that says something when you shock Hollywood. But here's what's interesting. Halemelech is the son of Hatab, who is related to Phineas, the son of Eli. Now, what was the judgment on the house of Eli? You're not allowed to be priests, and they'll all die young. Is he fulfilling prophecy? Yes. But pay attention. God is able to use even this godless despot king to fulfill his purposes. But at the same time, does Saul have the right to kill the priest? Is he doing it for the fulfillment of prophecy? No. And he's still held responsible because even though God said that the priests will die young, it didn't have to happen this way. And it's still, the heart of Saul was not about fulfilling prophecy. And so you have this really interesting, the sovereignty of God using this to fulfill his prophecy. At the same time, the total moral depravity and human responsibility of Saul and executing this in a very godless way. And they're both there. And the Bible doesn't apologize for the tension. We like to resolve the tension by creating Arminianism and Calvinism. But the Bible doesn't resolve the tension, nor do I think you are ever meant to. And so you have this person. Now, and the other thing that makes this clear is we're going to see this story again in Kings over and over again, where God is going to prophesy the destruction of a house, and the king is going to come in later and do it, and God is going to hold the king accountable for what he just did because it was evil, even though it was a prophecy. Because even though a human might be fulfilling it, it's still evil. Saul, you would think he could be justified, but he's not. It's still evil. It's still moral depravity. And he is now an enemy of God, even though God can still use this guy to fulfill his prophet, prophecies. I think we need to be reminded of that, too, that there's a lot of people we don't really have a lot of respect and we think are really bad in our governments and that kind of stuff. And you have to realize, if anything, this teaches you God is using them. We may not fully understand his purposes, and, we may, and if we do, we may not like it. But the reality is, God put them there. And they're being used by him. Because even in the Second Testament, God makes it very clear, I lift up kings and I bring them down. And then he also says, and pray for your leaders. Moving on, that's too convicting. But one of the sons of Halemlech, son of Atab, escaped and fled to David. His name was Abiathar. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed. Now the word killed here is actually a strong word of slaughtered. So Saul turned in to execute. Abiathar, the son of his, the entire family, sees it as a different way. Slaughtered the priest of Yahweh. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would certainly tell Saul, I am guilty of all the deaths in your father's house. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. Whoever seeks my life is seeking your life as well. You are secure with me. 
Now, kudos to David for taking credit. Did David make this happen? No. If David would have told the truth, could it have still happened? Yes. Is David on the same equal level of sin and disobedience as Saul? No. But Halimelech was put in a very dangerous position that he didn't know that he was in because David lied to him. And he accepts responsibility for that. Now, is not Saul made his choice, and he's responsible for it, and David didn't make him do that. And we don't know what he would have done either way, but kudos to David for at least recognizing that things could have gone differently if Halemelech would have been a lot more aware of what the truth was. And if he still chose to help me, then at least it was his choice. And David bears the blame and the guilt for it. And that is good of him. Now, here's what's interesting. Saul never owned up to his sins and repented. And one could very easily say, well, that's not my fault. I'm not the one that did it. And yet David is owning up to it. And right there we see a big difference between the two. That one where we think, well, yeah, but David, come on. It's not your fault. Isn't that what everybody says in the movies all the time? It's not your fault. It's not your fault. You could have never known. But David's like, no, it is. It is. I am responsible. I sin in an effective people. 